Hey guys, we have the coolest thing in our longest, shortest time merch shop. Just in time for Valentine's Day, we have mom tattoos. Jesse Hopeless, you know, the amazing tattoo artist featured in our episode, Kicking Ass While Pregnant, she created these designs for us and they're beautiful and so badass. One of them is a heart with dashes that actually spells out M-O-M in Morse code. So order now for Valentine's Day and the proceeds, they help support our show. Go to longestshortesttime.com and hit the shop button. Sam noticed Caitlin on their first day of grad school. They were at St. Andrews University in Scotland. I didn't know anyone there. Uh, so I just made a quick survey of the room to see like, who people were. And my eyes rested on Katie really quickly. And when she started talking, I just, I don't know, I, I thought she looked really cool. That's what I remember. Really cool and defiantly beautiful. He knew he needed the perfect opening line. Here's what he came up with. Um, hey, give me your number. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, thank God she uh, thought I had the charm to pull that off. Sam asked Caitlin out on a date. Sort of. He invited her to a local jazz club and brought along his roommate, Ben. And on the way to the club, Sam happened to recognize this guy. He was playing guitar in the bar next door. And he was one of the other students from their tiny political theory program. His name was Andreas, and he was from Greece. He is he's like six foot, athletic. He's got this uh, silky smooth Greek accent. Walked around with a worn leather bag over his shoulder, with you know copies of Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. So Sam saw this Greek god, and in a deeply misguided attempt to be inclusive of his new classmate, popped his head in the bar and invited Andreas to join them. So we end up at the jazz bar, and he, he shows up, and he, he's so smooth, he's so charming. And I am getting some warning bells, like, this is my date, and I screwed up. Like, why did I invite the wolf? In there? <laughs> and I, uh, I realized at some point that, okay, this... I need to I, I need to make fun of him or something. And I asked him, so how many instruments do you play? Well, and then he starts listing all these instruments. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> do you have <laughs> his number? <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And he, he, his arms are of this perfect shape where it looks like he's strong and he works out, but but it's not over the top. Like everything about this guy is this Greek adonis. And um, he has this really cool jacket on that has a pocket right over his bicep. And he says, well, I play the harmonica. And I, and I just like, as a joke, well, why don't you play us a little tune there, Andreas? And he leans in and he's like, sure, I will. And he zips this pocket up pulls out this like a harmonica that's his grandfather gave him or something you know, it's, it's a bad movie <laughs> and Ben looks at me and I look at him and I I think catastrophe is about to unfold I mean, I'm in, and Katie is sitting right next to me and I look at her as like you know I am you're like I hope you and Andreas have a great life together <laughs> exactly that's, and he's he puts that harmonica like so you know sensually close to his mouth and he just makes this beautiful sound makes this 
I remember walking back home with Ben and I was just, that was the first thing he said after I said bye to Katie. Well, I think you screwed that one up. (laughs) (laughs) But Sam shouldn't have worried so much. The was not the seduction tool he believed it to be, which, duh. And in addition to being cute and charming, Katie would soon come to learn Sam really does have a way with words. Um, hey, give me your number. Well, most of the time. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Sam won over Caitlin with some pretty direct language, which is funny because language has turned out to be a pretty core issue in their relationship and a big source of tension in their first year as parents. You see, Sam and Caitlin just had a baby boy, Eamon. But, yeah, I, I never thought about language. You're, he only likes talking when I'm talking. Sounds like Eamon is going to be a good talker. But he can't technically speak yet. He's only six months old. And that's why Caitlin and Sam reached out to us. Because they got to figure out what language this kid is going to speak. First thing to know is that Sam and Caitlin grew up worlds apart linguistically. Here's Caitlin. I had a couple failed attempts at Spanish class, but <laughs> but that was it. Caitlin was born up in Great Falls, Montana. She lived in the same house her entire childhood, three blocks away from her grandparents. Her family only spoke English, like a lot of us, but Caitlin grew up with a deep curiosity about the world. She'd watch PBS NewsHour with her parents captivated by worldly brainiacs like Madeleine Albright, the sparkly brooches she always wore, her ability to address the people of Yugoslavia and Serbo-Croatian. I remember asking my parents why she sounded funny, and (laughs) um, they were explaining that she's actually an immigrant and she speaks languages other than English. And I think that's my first memory of thinking that was really cool. As Caitlin got older, it was the politics, the social resonance of language that got its teeth in her. In college, she got really into Michel Foucault, Hannah Arendt, and she got frustrated whenever she came across a twisty passage by Jacques Derrida that she couldn't get her head around. He would make a joke that was sort of a play on words, and I just didn't get it because I didn't speak French. And I, I remember, I do remember feeling envy for people that did speak French and could read it, and then they would laugh, and everyone would be laughing, and I would think, dang it, I missed the joke. Did you feel like this was holding you back that you only spoke English? In some ways, yeah. I really just felt like there was this whole world out there that I had no access to. <laughs> I, I really envied them so much. So now imagine this kid from Montana lands in Scotland after college, joining a grad program for political theory full of Europeans and multilingual smarty pants. There's this amazing cacophony of languages everywhere, Japanese, Chinese, Bulgarian, Greek, and there was this one guy in particular, Samir from Norway, who goes by Sam. He was wearing a red sort of maroon cowl neck sweater that I remember thinking was so European. (laughs) And his hair is really dark and it has a really severe part and it kind of, uh, I don't know, it just looked like his hair matched his sweater in some way. (laughs) So how did you know you were into him? I think just what he had to say in class initially. 
everything he said was seemed so profound. And I remember thinking like, wow, where did you come up with that thought? This profound, Kalnick-clad gentleman seemed like the kind of guy you'd feel at home anywhere in the world. And as they got to know each other, Sam told Caitlin about his upbringing. And his family story read like a movie romance. His mom, a vivacious Norwegian woman, meets his dad, an enterprising Moroccan man, and they fall in love in an Oslo coffee shop. They have two children, fly away to Morocco, where the kids learn Arabic and French in the bazaars of Tetuan and Spanish at a private school. Sam told Caitlin how at home, he'd chat with his mother Norwegian while their father, busy cooking pasta, would toss off Italian slang he'd picked up while working in an Amsterdam pizzeria. And then later I learned that if you're Norwegian, you actually speak Swedish quite easily. They're very similar languages. Um, And Danish you can understand and speak as well, although it's harder to read apparently. But it felt like for a while there, every time we'd have a conversation, he would be like, oh yeah, in Danish, this and this is the case. And I would be like, what, you speak Danish too? (laughs) And (laughs) he... He is not fluent, but conversant in Spanish and French and Italian. And that would just sort of come up randomly. And I was always like, okay, that's it. How many do you actually speak? Caitlin tried to imagine what that would have been like for Sam to feel perfectly at home in all of these different countries. The description I remember was him describing what it was like to be in the bazaars in Morocco with his dad and his brother and you know, you would hear the call to prayer and you would see people selling slippers and rugs and pistachio ice cream. And, you know, you can smell the jasmine flowers at night. And he was, he was describing all of this and, and saying how, how natural Arabic as a language feels in that setting. As they got to know each other, Caitlin would get these little glimpses into the other ways Sam could see the world little phrases he'd mutter without even thinking that showed he was processing things just slightly differently. I think one of my favorites is when you say that I'm sick in Norwegian, it's sick. And it just sounds like a really dramatic way of saying I am sick in English. (laughs) And that one made me laugh so hard when he said it once. Because sometimes it, it does just come out. Yeah. Um, for a while, actually for a long time after we, we first met, he would dream in Norwegian or he'd like roll over and ask me what time it was in the middle of the night in Norwegian. Interesting. And, and I would just sort of be like, you did it again. I have no idea what you just said. But then eventually I realized what the question, what time is it sounds like. And I would just tell him. (laughs) Um, but when, when we first met in 2010, um, it was sort of clear that he he had an English brain and a Norwegian brain, and one was like his reptilian brain, that was the Norwegian brain, and his sort of schooling and writing brain was English. But isn't that crazy that um, when you're talking to him, you're not talking direct to the reptilian brain, you know, someone that you, you share a life with? Like, don't you sometimes wish you had direct access to that id if you need to reach out to it. We've had that conversation and I I definitely did for a while. And then a couple, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, um, it started to seem like his id was actually in English now. And I don't that was a really subtle change, but it it um it got to the point where when he was trying to express a really complex thought, he would look to his English vocabulary for it. And then it started to feel like 
yeah, like <laughs> it's a good way of saying it. Like his id spoke English. <laughs> Even though Sam's brain was now dreaming in English, when Caitlin thought about their future together, married with kids, she wasn't dreaming of just one place or one culture. I envisioned us visiting my sister and her husband in the UK and Sam's brother and his longtime girlfriend in Oslo and maybe going down to Morocco to see where Sam grew up. I, it was sort of, it jumped from place to place, but it was always just me and Sam and some kids whose faces I couldn't picture. <laughs> Whatever they looked like, Caitlin knew she wanted to raise those kids in a multilingual home. Yeah, I always imagined that I could give my children this one, I felt like magical thing that I didn't have. And that was family all over the world and easy access into other cultures through language. But I also didn't know at the time that we were going to be owning a business and raising a family in my hometown <laughs> in Great Falls, Montana. After St. Andrews, Caitlin turned to Sam and was like, where to next? Oslo? Samir was like, well, the U.S. sounds kind of nice. And that's what they did. Samir and Caitlin both went to a Montana law school. Caitlin on in-state tuition, Sam with a student visa. They married, clerked on the Montana Supreme Court at the same time, and soon enough, they were pregnant. Sam started talking to Caitlin's belly. And sometimes he'd say funny little things in Norwegian or Arabic. Do you remember your very first conversation about what language you teach your kid? Yeah, I I basically came right out and asked Sam if when the baby was born, or even when I was pregnant with, with the baby, if he would just speak to the baby in Norwegian and Arabic like he would speak to me in English and just go about his day in one of those two languages or switch among the three of them just to, because I, I knew that kids who are introduced to language, multiple languages really early on have a much easier time learning those languages and being fluent in them as adults. If they don't have to sit down in a classroom like I did and learn to conjugate the verbs and learn vocabulary, you know, if it was, if speaking that language was just part of their life, then they wouldn't even have to try to be fluent in in the way that I had to really try. And I wanted that for Eamon. Yeah, so I just asked Sam that, and he didn't answer right away. Which was surprising, because normally, Sam's pretty direct. Hey, give me your number. It was fun initially, because it was just sort of us daydreaming about what the baby would look like and what our life would be like. And then... Then I started to get a little bit frustrated because it felt like, you know, I was really pregnant and Eamon was imminent and <laughs> Sam hadn't really given me a firm answer about what he wanted to do. Once Eamon was born, the conversation faded for a bit. Keeping the baby asleep and dry and alive was hard enough without trying to do all that in Norwegian or Arabic. Then Sam's mom and brother and aunt came to visit from Norway when Eamon was six or seven weeks old. And his mother asked us very casually when we were going to start speaking to the baby in Norwegian. And <laughs> Sam and I made eye contact and his eyes got really wide. And <laughs> I just sort of put my head down and was like, you're on your own. <laughs> and he 
just, he was very direct with his mom. I don't know, mom. We might not do that. When we come back, Sam has some explaining to do. Stay with us. We're back with Caitlin and Samir Arab, two Montana lawyers who have a new case on their docket. What language to teach this guy? So Sam's just awkwardly dropped this bomb on Caitlin. He did it right in front of Caitlin's mother-in-law, despite the pile of Norwegian baby books she just gave them. It turns out he was maybe not going to speak Norwegian to their son, Eamon. Maybe not Arabic either. Maybe only English. To which Eamon said, And Caitlin, well, she was bummed. I felt kind of resigned to that because there's there's really nothing I can do if Sam doesn't want to to teach them. I certainly can't. I am so with Katie on this one. There's this brief window when your tiny brain is all squishy. No offense, Eamon. And his malleable neuroplastic brain, it's so eager to absorb whatever kind of language cocktail gets poured in there. You don't want to wait till after puberty when, in addition to all your zits and horrible fashion choices, researchers agree the window closes. By then, you've acquired most of your language skills, even if the only word your parents are going to hear out of you for weeks at a time is, duh. Plus, kids who are taught more than one language from birth have better creativity, critical thinking skills, flexibility of the mind, even a better ability to pay attention. So this seemed like this amazing gift that my son could have, that his father could give him, and I couldn't. And then I I was thinking about all the the opportunities he would have. We, I mean, he could go visit his grandmother in Oslo and speak Norwegian and fit right in and get all the jokes when everybody was laughing. And he could watch the news and watch like Al Jazeera and just understand what was going on when someone was speaking in Arabic. And he could be a diplomat or, uh, I mean, he could, he could have these amazing life and travel all over the world and have all these experiences that I couldn't have. And he could do it without any effort at all because he was fluent in these languages basically from birth. That was my vision. <laughs> Right. And so what it's when you were like, you're holding our son back from his future career as a diplomat and like you're really hurting his foreign service exams. What did Sam say? Well, he rightly so accused me of um, caring about my son's resume (laughs) in a sort of artificial way. You know, he just he kept saying that um, fluency in another language is not a line on your resume. Actually, it is a line used on a resume. And when you're applying to colleges, to law schools, when you're running for office, even if you're filling out an online dating profile, I honestly can't think of a situation where someone would say, should we offer this incredible opportunity to young Eamon? No, we can't. He speaks too many languages too proficiently. He kept telling me to to calm down (laughs) and that if Eamon wanted to learn these languages someday, he'd have a great teacher and his dad. Okay, Dad, but by then, that training's going to involve grammar books and flashcards and Eamon pointlessly downloading a $40 app because it promises to teach him Norwegian in a week. So give me the final count. How many languages do you speak? 
Mm, I would say three, three to five. (laughs) For Sam, each of his three to five languages has its own feel coming out of his mouth. There's his Norwegian. Easy and fluid and comfortable. And his Arabic. It feels heroic, Arabic, um, because that's the way my father spoke it to me. Sam's parents didn't speak each other's native languages. So Sam grew up speaking a different linguistic mashup with every member of his immediate family. Sam spoke Norwegian at home with his mom, even after his family moved from Norway to Morocco when he was two. Then there was his younger brother. Sam would speak Norwegian with him or Spanish when they were at school. Or when they were up to no good, they'd flip into whatever language the parent in question was weakest at. At the dinner table, when everyone needed to talk together, they'd all speak in English. And as for his dad... He has a tendency to break out in Italian when he's cooking or uh, French when he wants to give directions, uh, English when he wants to explain something conceptual, Arabic when he wants to recite a poem uh, for a teaching moment. (laughs) Do you realize what a gift that is? (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I do now. Every time Sam describes his upbringing, it feels like he's making Caitlin's point, right? How could you not want to give your kid all these cool cultures? Sam kept giving me the same answers he'd given Caitlin. It, it's, language is not a resume line. It's not. It's so, to me, it is so reductive to think about language that way. It misses the huge cultural baggage that language comes with. I mean, programming language in computers, uh, maybe that's acultural. And computers become more powerful, the more efficient the language is, the more languages you can communicate in. In my mind, Uh, humans don't operate that way. I don't operate that way. Sam says he wants to be a father, not a walking language tutor. Which I want to tell him, have you heard the parents of toddlers ever? Every parent of a toddler is a walking language class. Can you say duck, amen? Duck. Duck. What does a duck say? Quack. Quack. Duck starts with a D. Duck, amen. Duck. But Sam disagrees. You cannot really, I think, communicate culture in language absent from that culture. Like my dad taught me how to pray five times a day. He taught me how to wash before prayer. But he taught me all of that while I was still in Morocco. So it seemed perfectly natural because there were thousands of people going to going to the mosque every day to pray and hearing the call to prayer and uh, having a relationship to that prayer rug. Um, and I remember then coming to Norway and feeling that this doesn't belong here. So you so you really can't imagine him having an effective experience learning the language in Montana, any no. language in Montana other than English? Um, no. I mean, that's a, that's a short answer. When Sam was nine, he moved from Morocco back to Norway, the country of his birth. Now remember, Norwegian was Sam's home language, the language that felt easiest to him, the language of his mother's bedtime stories. But in Norway, it didn't always feel like he was being welcomed home. I mean, I hadn't been in Norway since I was two years old. And although I spoke really Norwegian really well without an accent, I mean, I my mom always spoke to me in Norwegian. So um, I, it was really important to me to be, to be Norwegian, I suppose. Um, I remember this one kid, Jonas, who I went to middle school with later on. Um, we were like nine or ten. Um, 
uh, he he asked, "Well, can you can you write something in Arabic?" And I said, "Sure." You know, so I wrote you know his name and my name in Arabic. You know, and I was ten years old. Like this is my name is Jonas in Arabic. And he's like, "Oh wow, that looks so funny." Because to me, and then he picked up the chalk, and he just scribbled on it. You know, like a bunch of you know lines because that's what it looked like to him. And I remember at that moment thinking, "I don't like you very much." <laughs> And I just I, that, and I, but also realized that moment that here's this normal kid, and to him this is so foreign, and that it's just to him it just looks like a jumbled mess of lines, and that was the first moment I realized that I was a little bit different when it came to language. That was the first time that that difference felt like a bad thing. Yeah, well, it, it did for a lot of times because. Um, I mean, I was a 10-year-old kid, and I was desperate to be acknowledged. And um, Norwegians have, uh, as, as a general matter, a very uh, defined uh, sense of identity. And part of those factors that make up that common sense of identity is based on things that were very hard for me to change. And like my name, and and I know if they're if they're Norwegians that listen to this, they're gonna rise up in in protest of me saying something like this. But but it, to some degree, also certain things I couldn't change about myself, like skin color, hair color, and things like that. Moving back to Norway altered Sam's relationship with his dad, especially. The two of them went from having an easy, natural communication about their world to feeling like they were in their own idiosyncratic bubble. Sam watched his dad change from a man who was at ease in his surroundings to a man he wanted to protect. And he saw how much language was culture in these moments. It was Sam's job to explain to his father in Arabic that, no, the Norwegian shopkeeper isn't going to be willing to negotiate. That 200 krona meant 200 krona. Sam would have to turn back to the shopkeeper and explain to Norwegian that no matter what price he said, his father was still going to want to haggle. The world that Sam had to navigate was full of all these invisible, often subtle linguistic barriers, even within his own family. You know what? I had so many problems communicating with my parents and having them communicate with me. Do you feel like it? it the family was different than if you'd all just spoke one language? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, so uh, confusion was common. Especially for my father, it was very hard to, if he had a grievance, um, <clears throat> and he's never been really good at communicating generally. Uh, one of the first things you learned, uh, at least in my family, was that you had to have a certain degree of empathy in order to understand one another uh, more fully. And even, even when you're really upset uh, or angry, you would have to be patient with yourself and the people around you and really invest in trying to find out what the problem is. These invisible barriers got harder to surmount over time. And the longer Sam and his brother lived in Norway, the more their Arabic began to atrophy. And Sam says their communication with each other became a little more stilted along with it. As glad as Sam is that he learned patience and empathy as a kid, these barriers are not something he wants in his relationship with Eamon or in the family he's building with Katie. Plus, Sam is really into English. Oh, God. English feels fun. English feels like fun. That surprised me. English is the language that brought us Big Mac. Whatever. Tremendous. It's guttural and clunky. 
But Sam's an attorney. He had to work for years to not just be fluent, but masterful in English. And oh my God, I could listen to this guy talk about his favorite words all day. Like I have a grand time speaking in English. Uh, because uh, sometimes I just can't believe, oh, there's a word for that. Um, like what? What's a fun word? Well, uh, so uh, my sister-in-law was just visiting and we were playing board games and she wasn't attending as quickly as I wanted her to attend uh, to some things, which is completely silly of me. So I always said, oh, Hannah, can you demonstrate some more Elan, please? And I just had, it gave me so much pleasure to say the word Elan and, uh, because I thought, oh, wow, what a wonderful word. <laughs> and uh, Words like comport, it comports with that. Uh, to me, it's that, that word feels wholesome. And it's, it's so much fun to find those words and use them in, in the right moments and the right times. And if I want to communicate something like fun or complex, but quickly, that's what I associate with English. It's actually, in effect, it's a great language for puns. Puns. No wonder he wants to speak to his kid in English. He's got to make sure he's fluent in dad jokes. And it's also the language of the woman who made him a father. Coming up, our two lawyers approach the bench and have a word with the judge. Don't go away. Oh, you have your mouth don't you? Advertisements. We're back with Sam, who's still stubbornly thwarting his own child's ability to one day become the most interesting man in the world, and who is also, weirdly, beginning to win me over on this one. It's not like Sam isn't conflicted about this himself. I mean, there is so much from his childhood and his history that he wants to share with Eamon. Like, my father really liked quoting me poems. And I, that was always a source of great frustration for me because if I knew he wanted to preach, he would recite a poem. And <laughs> like he, there's one poem and he made me recite it, learn it by heart. A child um, goes to the Prophet Muhammad and he complains to the Prophet that his father is working him too hard. And this son had just come back from you know, college or something. And at least that's how my dad told me. He came back from college and he was expecting his dad to say, I'm so proud of you. But instead, his dad just shook his hand and said, well, get to work. I needed to tend to these animals. I needed to bring that crop in. And, and months of that behavior went on. And, uh, and the way the poem is written, it seems like the father is a very unreasonable fellow. Eventually, Sam says the kids had enough. So he goes to speak to the prophet, who he hopes will straighten his dad out. The prophet hears all this and gets kind of ticked off on behalf of the kid and says, don't worry, kid, I'll go to your dad and teach him a thing or two. And anyway, this is a really long poem. <laughs> and I just realized, <laughs> but the point of that story was that the prophet goes then to see the father and on route to see the father, the, the angel Gabriel stops the prophet and says, before you say anything else to this father, ask him what is in your heart that you have never shared with anyone. So that's what the prophet does. And when the father hears this, a beautiful poem pours out of him, words he's never admitted out loud, even to himself. The hardships it was to raise a child alone in the desert and the pride that he felt and 
the the sorrows that he had when this child was sick and and it, it's 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 really a, uh, it's about the saga of all the things that are untold between in a family and the things that a son can never fully appreciate because they never their children uh, for so long so hearing stories like that growing up like from my father it was always it was extremely powerful when you're 16 uh so you can't wait to tell your son that <laughs> no, <exactly. laughs> that's yeah. all i hear uh, is like like what uh, uh, when is he going to be seven <laughs> exactly i read a translation of this poem myself which bear with me it's a hadith written in sixth century arabic <clears throat> alas if it was not possible for you to fulfill my right as a father you could have at least done what a good neighbor would have done so you could have given me the least right of a neighbor and abstained from becoming miserly, in my case, in my own property. So, yeah, something's getting lost in translation here. And at first I wanted to be like, Sam, this would be way easier if you would just teach your kid Arabic. But then it clicked. The kind of language that Sam shared with his father in Morocco that feeling of memorizing the words to prayers in a world where you could hear the call to prayer in the morning, where you learn the Arabic word for pistachio ice cream by having it shouted at you as you walk through a bazaar, where your father wants to tell you how much he loves you. And he does it through a poem that's been steeped in the language that he and you and everyone around you has been steeped in. Sam wants that with Eamon too, but Arabic's not going to be that language for them. Norwegian isn't either. That language for Sam is English. And this is kind of where Katie's landed too. Every day we're building our relationship with our son. And we just have to be honest about what an authentic relationship looks like given our context. Part of it is, is coming to the realization that there's just no way that his childhood and his adulthood is going to be either like mine or like Sam's or perfect in some you know, universal sense. Okay, okay, Sam, you win here. We got one last thing to do. You're going to have to explain this to your kid. This is just, I'm going to just try this. Um, could you talk to Eamon for me and tell him why you guys have decided to speak to him in English, why English is going to be the right language for your family? Yeah, I can try. Uh <laughs> Um, Amen. I hope you will forgive me many years from now for this decision uh, because I'm not sure if there's a decision yet, uh, my boy. But I want to have a really good relationship with you that's, that, I th that I would feel is full and completely... Yeah, completely free of any filters. And in a way I can communicate who I am and what I am to you and pass on the best I am to you without um, feeling like there is going to be a barrier in that communication. And I think the best way of doing that is in English. Um, and then your mom can be a part of it too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Then we can have a language all as a family. Yeah. Yep. But I will, I will teach you manjare. I will teach you about your family. I will teach you Arabic a little bit. And I'll teach you some Norwegian. Well, he already likes uh, crushed up blowback. Yeah, <laughs> blueberries. blueberries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's the other thing, I Eamon. Mean, it happens to be the language that I feel really comfortable 
conversing in day to day. And it's the language in which you became your dad. Yeah, and it's the language your mother speaks, and it's the language that you're going to speak with your friends around here. But if you, many years from now, think that's a mistake, I'll take it back. <laughs> yeah, amen. Call me up, and we could do another interview in 18 years. You can let it all out in whatever language feels right. We want to hear from you. What's something about raising your kid that you and your partner can't quite get together on? Tell us at longestshortesttime.com in the comments for this episode. That's episode 150. This podcast was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Kristen Clark. Our executive producer and editor is Hilary Frank. Our editor for this episode was the fabulous Peter Clowney, who always sounds like an angel when he plays harmonica. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Anne Marie Baldonado, Antonia Acatunde, and Rekha Murthy. And we are so excited to announce a new member to our editorial board. We're so happy to have you, Julia Wang. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time How to Convince Your Wife to Set Up Cameras all over your house. Our kid said something and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we had cameras everywhere to capture it? And I think she said like, no, <laughs> like a normal person would. Don't miss this show. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And as always, we want to hear your stories. You know, we do so much in our cars these days. We put on makeup, eat our meals, and give birth. So right now we want to hear your stories of giving birth in cars. Not conceptions, though we're sure those happen too. So pull over, roll down a window, and head to longestshortesttime.com to submit your story.